You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the Bears Illustrated podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Miner, alongside Pranay Mampadi, as always. And today, very special episode, we welcome in our guest, Shahan Jehoraja uh, from CBS Sports, covering college football uh, in its entirety. Doesn't matter uh, if you're non-Power 5, Power 5, underdog, big, small, it doesn't matter. He's got you covered on all things college football. Uh, and today we're talking about CFP, greatest CFP ever. Um with two great semifinal games, including TCU beating Michigan and then uh, in the Fiesta Bowl and then uh, Georgia pulling off uh, the comeback against Ohio State in the Peach Bowl. Uh, Shahan, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Like you said, a fantastic slate of games this past week. It's It's been quite a year for college football. I feel like uh, you know we'll have to see how it ends, obviously, in the title game. But this feels like it's been one of the more interesting college football seasons we've had in a while. Uh, actually, even in bowl season, I crunched up at the numbers. Out of 43 bowl games, 22 were one-score games, and 12 were within three points. So, look, I, I, I know that maybe this all didn't e- extend to our uh, beloved Baylor Bears. But other than that, I think it's been a pretty fun season season yeah it, it, it really has been and let's just start let's dive in with it college football playoff still at four teams gonna expand uh to 12 in the in the not too distant future but for what just happened the best cfp ever i think that's inarguable at this point what were what were your takeaways um from the weekend overall those two games well, I think the biggest thing that I, I would take away is it feels like some of the stranglehold that's been uh, kind of held over college football is maybe starting to break a little bit. Obviously, we get uh, the, you know, a playoff without Alabama. We were really, really close to getting a playoff that didn't have Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, or Oklahoma, who had taken up 20 of the first 28 spots. Uh, Ohio State did make it ultimately, but they lost in the semifinal. And uh, you know, the, the other thing, too, is that I think the gap between the top and, you know, sort of like second tier of the sport is probably as close as it's ever been. Obviously, look, there are teams that have more talent than everybody else, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State. But I I think that we are closer than we've been in a while to some of those second tier teams being able to compete. Obviously, TCU being one of those teams. I'd even consider Michigan to probably be right on the edge of being one of those teams as well. And uh, and I think that that's a fantastic thing for college football, and it makes things uh, really interesting heading forward. And and honestly, it makes the timing absolutely perfect for a 12-team playoff. So, Shahan, I have a question regarding conferences. Now, we saw Ohio State go down in a very close battle with Georgia, and, and then we saw TCU beat Michigan, who earlier beat Ohio State earlier in the season. Um, TCU, who wasn't even the Big 12 champ, who had lost to Kansas State, who, of course, got clobbered by Alabama. So I guess after watching all these bowl games in the playoff, where does this put the Big 12 in the big picture? Yeah, well, I think that the big criticism of the Big 12 heading into 
a post-Texas and Oklahoma era is that people don't view this as a conference that can truly produce a national caliber team, a national championship team, right? Texas and Oklahoma are the only programs in the Big 12 that have won one since, I believe, World War II, basically, right? I know that TCU won one back in 1938, but I, I don't know that anybody's won one more recently than that. And so I think that just this, right? Because because actually you look at the, the conference, they only went one and six in bowl season outside of the playoff. But I think that ultimately having a team compete with Michigan, have a chance to play in the national championship game, regardless of what happens next, I, I think does fundamentally shift the way that people look at this conference heading forward. Obviously, uh, the Big 12 will also add Cincinnati coming, uh, coming forward, who was in the college football playoff a year ago. And I think that when we get into this 12-team world I, I think that the big 12 will have a very good chance to not just put a team into the playoff every year which i think is a, a virtual guarantee but to have multiple teams in the college football playoff uh, a lot of years so I, I think that the big 12 has to feel really good about where they're at certainly again um you know a couple of disappointing performances in bowl season of course but uh but i think that winning a college football playoff game this many teams obviously that were competitive against TCU being in the Big 12 as well uh, I think really does help shift some of the perception of the league and and puts the the Big 12 in a very good position heading forward yeah absolutely I think a very exciting future for the for the Big 12 the only team other team that wins a national championship from the Big 12 I think that comes to mind is Nebraska 97 um they got one there looking at Let's talk about the, the Michigan TCU game and how that happened. Um, I think it was appropriate. That's the, the Fiesta Bowl. There's so much history with underdogs winning in the Fiesta Bowl um, just in college football. But how did, how did, how did you see it break into two parts? How did you see it going into the game enough to just, you know, you know, soothsayer Shahan with gumption, with attitude, I'm picking TCU, no questions asked straight up. And then, and then as the game progressed, materialized, um, I'm guessing it didn't go exactly the way you thought it was. So many twists and turns. Um, but we kind of break down going in and then, you know, after analyzing it. Well, I think that there's a couple of things. First of all, you know, there are these sort of recruiting superpower teams that, uh, you know, for the middle class of college football, they struggle to compete with, right? I, I mean, there, it doesn't really matter for a lot of programs. Like you look at that Alabama-Kansas State game, Kansas State was able to compete with a really, really good TCU team. They were able to compete with a really good Texas team and a really good Oklahoma team, but like they were just not built to handle number one overall in town, Alabama, right? Like that was just an athlete on athlete issue. And I, I think that TCU is much better built to deal with that kind of team. But I look at Michigan. They are in the teens in terms of 247 talent composite. I believe they're number 13 in the country. And, and TCU is in the low 30s and, and is more talented than that because of some transfers and development and a very senior heavy roster. Uh, and, and so all that to say, I think that we have been treating Michigan like they are Georgia or Ohio State because they have competed with Ohio State. And so for me, I really looked closely at that Big Ten championship game. That was actually a little bit of a, a canary in the coal mine, I guess you could say for me, because Purdue, while they weren't able to compete on the scoreboard, they moved the ball at will. 
But they continuously got into the red zone. They continuously passed the ball over the top of the Michigan defense. Actually, look at uh, Michigan playing against both uh, Purdue and against Ohio State. They allowed 300-yard receivers in those two games alone, including uh, 10 catches for 163 yards to Charlie Jones at Purdue. So I, I felt like this was a defense that maybe could get moved on if you got the right matchups, which I felt like TCU maybe had. On the other end, I felt like they would be able to make things difficult enough for J.J. McCarthy to to maybe confuse them. Uh, I certainly, you know, the, the factor in this game that I did not see coming was TCU being the more physical team. That is definitely not something that I anticipated heading into the game. But I did think that the way that TCU attacks uh, with their 3-3-5 defense, the way they come from different angles, would be able to create a couple of negative plays and maybe get Michigan off the field. Uh, again, I didn't necessarily think that it would be that, that after the first play of the game that TCU would shut down Michigan in the running game but uh, I thought they'd have success doing it so uh, a lot of things had to go right for TCU of course to be able to put together the performance that they had but really the funny thing about it is the final score was 51 to 45 Michigan managed to create some explosive passing plays there at the end but when you look at the advanced numbers when you look at the per play stuff the EPA stuff it really was Michigan making fluky plays at the end to make it close as opposed to TCU doing fluky stuff to prevent it from being closed. So a uh, huge credit to TCU. I, obviously, they're such an incredibly coached team with a lot of NFL talent. And uh, obviously now it's a, a much bigger challenge going against the University of Georgia. So we do want to move on to the the national championship game at, at one point. But first, I want, to, I want to ask you this about targeting. We saw a play at the end of the Michigan TCU game that very easily could have been called targeting, and it wasn't. And then I, I think there was another play at the end of the Tulane-USC game. Um, based on what I saw, I thought it was targeting and it also wasn't called. So what are your thoughts on those two calls and how targeting has been officiated in bowl season? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously such a difficult call to get right because it is such a bang-bang call, right? And I think that, you know, the, the TCU call was interesting. One, I mean, <laughs> it's one of those calls that if they do make that call and give Michigan second life, like, we're talking about it forever, just in the same way that Michigan fans might talk about not getting that call forever, right? So, um, you know, I, I think that not ultimately, or, or I guess that call not going through was probably the correct thing for the game and for what was happening in that moment, especially in a situation like that. Like, my question, uh, frankly, heading into that was like, was this a lateral? Was this a forward pass? You know, like I was wondering if it was a double forward pass before we even got to the point of it being, uh, you know, that targeting call potentially. It was such a weird sequence. And and I feel like there was some context given to how weird and disjointed the, the sequence was in terms of like intent. And this was not a defenseless player, right? So it had to be a much more direct rule of targeting. You know, how much did he get him with the shoulder? How much did he get him with the side of the helmet? How much did you get him with the crown of the helmet? Um, you know, and, and it wasn't a call that they made on the field. It was one that was flagged down from the press box to go and review. So I, I feel like just with the sequence of events, I was okay with the fact that they didn't ultimately call that a targeting. But, you know, I mean, again, if you wanted to get really, really technical about it, uh, I, I think that there was certainly a case for that to be targeting, which, you know, we, we don't know. Maybe that would have swung the game. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously in the in the Tulane USC game, like you mentioned, I mean, it's just 
again, it's so hard to get that right. And and I do, I, you know, look, I, I grew up uh, primarily watching basketball and there's a, you know, when it comes to basketball, like you kind of talk about officiating as an art more than a science, right? Like if you call every little ticky tack, every little, you know, hand on the arm or anything like that, like you're never going to get into any rhythm. And certainly we see that with uh, sort of line play, for example, and holding calls and things like that, that you really want to kind of let them play as long as they can and that sort of thing. So I, I'm okay with them not overcalling that kind of thing. I'd rather them not make a call that they're not sure about than make a call that they're not sure about. And for example, I mean, it was a relatively meaningless hit in the TCU game that would have taken out one of their corners for the national championship game for the first half, right? So I, I think that all this stuff kind of goes through your mind as a ref. It might not be the most satisfying answer for a, a, the team that had a potential targeting committed against them. But uh, I, I think that you know, certainly heading into the offseason, one thing that I'd really like to see is us eventually get to a point where we have almost like what we have flagrant one and twos, having a targeting one and two where one, you know, you, you get the penalty, but, you know, it's maybe a warning and a two gets you kicked out of the game. Because right now having to miss a whole game because you mistimed an angle just, you know, it, it does ultimately kind of suck for the sport. That that sequence at the end was wild if because TCU was already celebrating if they had reversed it and then Michigan gets a chance, you know, they would have had to, you know, then complete a Hail Mary or something like that. That would have been wild. I think it was a fumble offensive lineman grabbed it, pitched right. it to like a back and then he was still behind the line of scrimmage and right. pitched it forward. So I, it looked all kind of legal to me alive. Yeah. I, I don't know, but uh, wild. And then of course the, the touchdown overturned for Michigan, I think, that sticks in their crawl a little bit. Uh, but the TCU defense is, you know, Gary Patterson left, first year Sonny Dykes, but the TCU defense gets it done against Michigan. They have three goal line stands, two pick sixes. Um, and even though it's 51-45, it was, it was the defense that got the job done. Can they do that against Georgia uh, in the national championship game? And, and is this the biggest David versus Goliath matchup that you can recall in college football? I mean, look, so we've only had unified national championship games since 1998, and I don't even know who would come close, right? Like the the, the closest things that maybe you're talking about are like the, the 2013 Auburn situation where you have undefeated Florida State, but like Auburn had just won the title three years before that, right? So it's not like this is yeah. it's not like this is some historic David, right? This was more of an individual team. Um, you know, in terms of unlikely national champions, I feel like you have to go back to like 1990 when you have Georgia Tech and Colorado split the title. But, you know, one thing that I at one point that we kind of made on on the College Football Survivor Show, my podcast was, you know, look, those teams were named and voted national champions at the end of the season. They didn't have to beat two top four teams to get there. Right. Yeah. Like that's what TCU had to do. Uh, or would have to do to win the national championship. And that's what they had to do just to make the national title game, right? So I, I think this far and away is the most unlikely team to ever play uh, in a 
unified national championship game, certainly the most of the college football playoff era. I, I don't even think it's all that close. And uh, and look, I mean, TCU is a great football program. They've had a good 15, 20 years, right? Like they've been nationally relevant. You look back in history, they've obviously played for national championships uh, in the past, but we're talking pre-World War II, right? This is a completely different era of college football. So um, I, I think it absolutely is the most unlikely uh, story that we've seen in a very long time and easily the biggest David and Goliath we've ever seen in college football all right so if it is david versus goliath who's gonna win david or goliath yeah yeah well i i think that um you know this is a a, a baylor podcast right i guess we can keep the the biblical allegories going just a little <laughs> bit longer uh so you know i i think that uh for for david to win you got to have some nice stones in your slingshot right and i think that that certainly tcu has a couple of them quentin johnston is going to be a top 10 pick in the nfl draft at receiver max duggan a tremendous college quarterback obviously was a heisman runner-up uh and a heisman finalist for tcu the first since ladanian tomlinson which you know that's pretty good company uh and and then i think that on the defensive side of the ball right you've got travis hodges tomlinson who won the thorpe award as the best defensive back in the country at cornerback. Uh, I really like what D Winters has done for them at linebacker. And we've been waiting for Dylan Horton to kind of step up on the defensive line. And I felt like he did it in, in the last game and had a huge game. So here's the thing. Uh, I, I think that there are two things, one on each side of the ball that are really going to decide whether TCU can compete in this game. And, and everything could go right and they could still lose the game because Georgia's just really good. But the two things that I think will decide whether they can compete or not is uh, on the defensive side of the ball, they've got to figure out what they're going to do with those tight ends. I mean, they are. this is the most unstoppable tight end duo, Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington, that we've seen in college football probably since Iowa had TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant on the same team and maybe more dominant than that, to be honest. I mean, these guys are unbelievably good. Uh, and I don't think that TCU has an obvious matchup for them. Their linebackers are a little bit bigger and bulkier, which I thought worked really well against this Michigan team, but you're not asking Johnny Hodges, who's 250 to be guarding Brock Bowers one-on-one. He's going to get destroyed in that kind of uh, foot race. So I, I think that they need to have a good plan for what they're going to do. And frankly, they can't commit too much safety help to that because they also need their safeties to contribute in run defense. So uh, I, I think that that's sort of the impossible task that Georgia asks you to do. They've got good personnel. They're going to have some options. They're going to have some flexibility. And one of the great things about the 3-3-5 defense that they run is that you do have flexibility to have guys at different levels of the field and switch things around and change up coverages very easily. So I'm going to be excited to see what they do there on the defensive side of the ball. I actually think that maybe is the, the more difficult challenge for TCU heading into this game. But on, on the other side of the ball, on the offensive side of the ball, I think they just need to find some way to generate rushing offense. They don't have to run for 263 yards like they did against Michigan, but they have to keep the Georgia defense honest. If it's going to be played, uh, you know, completely outside of the hashes, I don't think that's a winning football game for TCU. I don't think Max Duggan is built to just step back and be a pocket passer and drop back past the entire game. I, I think they need to have him on the move. I think that they need the Georgia defense to be moving laterally more than just straight downfield. And uh, the thing that you say about Georgia's defense more than anything else is over the last two years is that they trigger faster than any team that I've like ever seen right like they whenever they know where they need to go they are 
they're coming for you and they're all five stars and they're all going to get there in four four speed right so i think that you need to find ways to move the the game and kind of use their speed against them to, to try to create some opportunities so i think a big part of that is going to be that again they're going to need to generate something in the running game whether it's zone read stuff whether it's uh kendra miller being healthy whether it's their backup amari di mercado uh, taking the bulk of those carries you don't want to go straight up the middle of the line uh, against this georgia team they're too good over there but i think that you want to stretch them out a little bit try to misdirect them and uh, and try to create some opportunities so that would be the two things that I'd be looking at most is how do you match up against those tight ends on one side and how do you get the defense uh, for Georgia moving quickly in the wrong direction on the other. So is there a, uh, is there a score prediction that you have in there some, somewhere in there, Sean? Yeah. Well, I, okay. Look, I was, I was one of the only people to pick TCU uh, heading into that Michigan game. And uh, I felt pretty good about that pick. I, I thought that I saw like real mismatches that they could take advantage of. Uh, I'm picking TCU. It's, it's a little bit more sticking to the bit at this point than anything <laughs> else. Like, I feel like, uh, I mean, look, nobody remembers when you're wrong. Everybody remembers when you're right. Right. So <laughs> I'm going to go, I think it's going to be a low scoring game. I think that uh, there's going to be limited possessions. Both teams are so efficient on the offensive side of the ball that I think that we, uh, we see some extremely long possessions. So I'm going to go TCU 28-24. Uh, it's going to come down to converting in the red zone. It's going to come down to holding onto the ball. You can't get taken off the field because if you get taken off the field, then Georgia's offense is too good and they're going to take advantage. But if TCU manages to to confuse Stetson Bennett a little bit. Also, one other thing I'll mention is Stetson Bennett was dealing with an ankle injury uh, during the, the last uh, game that they played. If he's not as dynamic running the ball, I think that that's a factor. And Darnell Washington is also questionable uh, coming into this game. Their second great tight end. So there's pieces, there's moments, but, uh, you know, again, Georgia's going to be a much more difficult test than TCU has faced maybe ever. I, I mean, this is this is up there with the toughest challenges that they've ever had in the history of their program. This is clearly the biggest game in the history of their program. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll get my I'll get my one uh, my one TCU shot in, you know, since we're on a Baylor podcast. You know, the nice thing is uh, the game's in California, so it's actually a home game since they're a California school anyway. But, uh, you know, so I, I think it's going to be a great opportunity for for them to to show out on the national stage. And I'll tell you what. I think the one thing that anybody who uh, is not a TCU fan should be excited about is if TCU comes in and competes with Georgia, even if they don't win, I think that that changes the way that everybody looks at everybody else in college football, that it is possible to have that roster where you have the senior quarterback and the NFL talent at receiver and a couple good players on the defensive side of the ball. And it is possible. And I think that uh, regardless of what happens in this game, I, I think that that is a huge statement for college football moving forward. And, and to follow up on that, just real quick, um, I, I, you will never be able to, get me off the position of that college football is a sport for the underdogs. I'm a big proponent of all the schools. Baylor is an underdog, obviously TCU, but I will always advocate for the, the Utah's, the Kansas state's Fernando's as well. We've had discussions all the time. Shahan, you, you know that me well enough to know that I'm, you know, pro small school. Anybody can, you know, has a shot to win the title at the beginning of the year. TCU proved that exactly that this year. Um, even if they don't win, they're there. They were what a 500 team the year before, first year head coach, and and they got there. Um, as, as this playoff opens up to to 12 teams, um, 
and and you have more teams competing for for the title uh do you think that is a benefit to those those smaller schools or do you think that's um or, or do you think you know there's two lines of thought it's a benefit to get more teams in um that more upsets can happen more diversity or it's just going to get more teams in and then alabama tennessee can just get healthy doesn't really matter what they do a couple losses and they can just you know run away with the field like alabama did against kansas state uh, in the sugar yeah, so so here's something that I'll say. I think that when we talk about college football, we as a like collective college football consciousness have such Alabama brain that like, well, you know, if you give Alabama any chance, they're going to be any team one time on one field, right? And like ultimately, Alabama's one of one, right? Like they are in the history of college football, there's never been a team that's dominated quite like Alabama. Like, well, again, Georgia might win, but they're not doing what 2011, 2012 Alabama was doing, even 2017, 2020 Alabama were doing, right? And so I, I think we almost in our mind have to put the fact that Nick Saban's the greatest coach in the history of the sport to the side a little bit. I, I think <laughs> that ultimately, look, we we obviously had the upset with Michigan, who was a heavy favorite against TCU, and TCU comes in and wins that game. Uh, we have a, right here in my backyard in the Cotton Bowl, we have Tulane and USC and USC has the Heisman winner and is a huge favorite heading into the game and Tulane a school that hasn't played in a major bowl game since 1938 and has six bowl wins in program history comes in and beats mighty USC and Lincoln Riley so like and I think that these games only get more exciting and more important and more impressive when they are games that uh, that are part of the postseason format, right? So, so something that uh, that I think that we don't think enough about is, for example, you know, look, Kansas State obviously was not a match for Alabama, like I talked about. I mean, from a pure talent perspective, like it's just sometimes one of those things where it's just a matchup thing where you just don't necessarily have the guys, right? But you know, this is the quote unquote worst Alabama team that we've seen in maybe a decade, and. I think it would be a good thing to see them go into the playoff and lose a game. They played five games this year that they had the ability to lose. Uh, two of them that they, of course, actually did lose, along with Texas A&M and Texas and Ole Miss. And, uh, and, and so I don't think they would have won the national title. And I think it would have been more powerful for people to see right. them lose to somebody than to just see them, you know, do whatever this was at the end of the year and be like, well, they were good the whole time. Right. I, I think it'll be more powerful to see Ohio State lose a game. I think it'll be more powerful to, to see Georgia lose a game. Right. Because the reality is, you know, when you play this many good teams in a row, it is very hard to win. Uh, take take Alabama, for example, right? If they were number five, and I, I don't want to do the reseeding of, of how it would be with conference champions, but let's just say Alabama's number five, right? They'd have to play number 12 Tulane, who just beat USC, by the way, so they can hang. Uh, then in the second round, they played number four Ohio State. Third round, they played number one Georgia. And then in the final, they'd probably get number three T TCU, right? So like, that's a lot, man. That's a lot for any team. And I actually think that uh, if Alabama were to find a way to get through that, man, then they, they will deserve this. They'll deserve the title, right? Like, they'll deserve it. Any team that makes it through all of that will deserve the title. And I think that the idea that, well, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State are going to be the only teams that can just always do that, I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. That's super interesting. Um, Last thing I've got for you, what are your takeaways on Baylor season and on what's happened so far this offseason as well? Yeah, yeah. No, so I I think that, you know, a couple thoughts. One, obviously disappointing. I I don't think that uh, even even on the low end, many people thought that this would be a six and six team, six and seven team, I guess, after the bowl game. Um, You know, I kind of viewed their floor as being maybe around eight and four, and they played a lot of close games and just came short in a way that they didn't last year where they won a lot of close games. And sometimes that turnover luck just... uh, just gets you right. I mean, I kind of think that TC is probably going to be an eight and four team next year, just because of that close game. Look, it, it tends to be a little cyclical, uh, especially when you have a veteran quarterback and a veteran defense versus when you don't, I think that the one thing that concerns me slightly is seeing some of the, the guys who are leaving, right? I mean, Lorando Johnson was somebody who I was pretty excited about. Al Walcott is somebody who I thought uh, could be a major contributor for Baylor, but you know, I mean, we're going to have to kind of sit and wait and see who they have in the secondary. If they add anybody else, obviously they're chasing a couple of targets on that side of the ball. Um, But, you know, I I do think that you have to feel good about the fact that again, Dave Aranda has never sat back and just taken things right. He is always evaluating. I remember after that first season when they obviously go two and seven and he hires a, a really good offensive coordinator, Larry Fedora, who's had a lot of success at different levels. And when he feels like it isn't working, he cuts it off right then, right? George Munoz, another guy, very highly touted assistant coming with him from LSU, says, I don't think this is working and and cuts him off. Uh, huge credit to him for doing that. Obviously, it brings in Jeff Grimes, who, who is such a huge part of that Big 12 championship game rung. Uh, and now I think that, you know, you see them addressing some of their biggest weaknesses with the hires that they've made. So Matt Pallage, a very young assistant coach who who obviously was co-coordinator at, uh, at Oregon, really highly touted by by the defensive backs that were in Baylor's room, including Jalen Petrie uh, during his time here. And then they bring in another guy in Christian Robinson, uh, a young former SEC assistant who should be a great recruiter for them. So I, I think that you still have to feel good that Dave Aranda has his fingerprints on the program, that he understands that he's evaluating uh, what they need to do better. But, you know, certainly I think they have a lot of work to do in that secondary and, and certainly at the quarterback position, there's going to be a lot of question marks heading into next year. Obviously uh, a lot of, uh, Plenty of people had had trouble with Blake Shapin throughout the course of his uh, first year as a starter, and he's kind of the only guy on campus right now, too. So well, I expect that they'll add a transfer for depth or maybe to compete for the starting job. But uh, I, I think that those are the two spots where you have to feel the, the most questionable about. But, you know, the one thing that I'll say, too, is that... <laughs> I was having a conversation with the with a fellow Baylor friend and after TC made the title game he's like if they win it all this is the end of Baylor football and like the reality is this team one year ago was 12 and 2 and finishing off their first top 5 season in a very long time if I think the 50s was the last time right so this is a really good team this is a really good program Dave Aranda is still one of the the most uh, heralded coaches in college football so the, the program's still in a good place but I think they have some questions to answer uh, especially on the uh, on the defensive side of the ball with that secondary trying to trying to figure out what the future is over there 
Yeah, certainly could have argued that Baylor deserved to be in the CFP uh, a year ago. Um, yeah, fiddle around with some things, right? But um, Baylor basketball, coincidentally enough, plays TCU tonight. Um, so we'll know the result by the time people are listening to this. But uh, um, State of the Union on Baylor basketball. I know you're a basketball guy, Baylor alum. How do you feel about the Bears as they enter Big 12 play? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that look, this has been a, a top five team in the country for the past two years now, right? And and this year, there's been a slight slippage. But the, the one thing that I'll say about this team versus last year's team is that, you know, I, I feel like this is a team that you can see the pieces growing, right? Where you can sort of see how it comes together at the end. I don't think they're necessarily going to be a team that, uh, that maybe even wins the Big 12 this year or, or finishes top two. But I think that they're going to be a team that is playing their best basketball come February and March. Uh, the biggest question for me, man, is when are these wings going to step up? I, th- I think that Jalen Bridges and Caleb Lohner have been a little disappointing for me, especially I- I'd say Bridges more than, than Lohner th- more than anything. Uh, Obviously, the guards have been as advertised when they've been healthy. I think that, uh, you know, Josh, I'm not going to try his last name. I try to get everybody's name right, but I'm not going to get that right this second. Uh, yeah, Ujamuna uh, has been has developed so much since since November. I mean, he's going to be an incredible player for Baylor down the road. Uh, it just feels like they're missing a wing who can step up and be dynamic on the defensive end, especially. And I, I think that they just need to get a little bit more consistent uh, at center as well. This is, you know, that really I, what this team needs more than any, anything is an everyday John back. Obviously that would, uh, that would help them out a whole lot. And that, that probably won't happen this year with his injury. But uh, you know, I, I think that this is a team that's going to continue to get better. They just need to be a little bit more consistent at wing, especially. And, and, uh, ultimately, I think they still have a great chance of going deep at the NCAA tournament whenever the time comes. Certainly, a- absolutely. So we'll, we'll see. We'll uh, we'll wrap it up here. Unless Pranay, you have anything else? I think you give me the thumbs up. So we're we're good. Um, Shahan, appreciate you jumping on, talking talking about everything under the sun. Uh, congrats again on on properly calling the TCU pick. I know we've discussed, you know, hey, TC beat Wisconsin that Rose Bowl all those years ago. Don't be surprised if, you, if they do it again. I don't think either of us had the the gumption to to outright pick them. Um, but here we are, national championship. TCU will play uh, for their first title since 1938. Georgia, with all the talk about Alabama for how good they've been, Georgia, if they win, would be the only team in the CFP era to win back-to-back titles, which is pretty interesting. Um, and... Uh, it should be a great night for college football, hopefully just as good as the semifinal matchups and some of the other bowl games that that we had. Shahan, where can everybody find you and your work? You do excellent stuff. You cover the sport holistically and across the board from for every single university. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find all of my work at cbssports.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Shahan J. Raja. Make sure and check out my podcast, The College Football Survivor Show, with Shahan J. Raja and Doug Maurice, where we talk about the playoff uh, and all the dynamics around it year-round. Uh, and, and just a reminder to people, I did start uh, my career over here in some ways at at Baylor 247. So, you know, this is a, a little bit of a homecoming for me. So it's always good to be on with you guys. Yeah, Absolutely. we appreciate, we appreciate you so coming much. on. That was awesome. Cool. Well, for this for this episode of the Bears Illustrated podcast, for Shahan, for today, this is Andrew Miner signing off. Sick and Bears.